Welcome to the podcast of the California Institute of Integral Studies, where we bring you conversations and lectures from our public program series, featuring world-renowned scholars, leaders, authors, artists, and thinkers. In this episode, one of America's most provocative public intellectuals, Dr. Cornell West. Dr. West's writing weaves together the teachings and traditions of the Black Baptist Church, social justice, progressive politics, and jazz. He's best known for his searing analysis of racism in American democracy, Race Matters, and his memoir, Brother West. His talk, which explores the burden carried by African-American men, was recorded on April 10, 2015, in front of a live audience in San Francisco. To make sure you never miss an episode, find us and subscribe on iTunes, on our website, and on Digital Commons. Oh, good evening, and welcome to tonight's uh, program hosted by CIIS. My name is Denise Boston, and I'm core faculty in the Expressive Arts Therapy Program. And I'm really happy and honored to be um, the newly appointed Dean of Diversity and Inclusion. So that's, thank you. It is my honor and privilege to introduce Dr. Cornell West, one of America's most provocative public intellectuals. Cornell West has been a champion for racial justice since childhood. His writing, speaking, and teaching weave together the traditions of the black church, Baptist church, progressive politics, and jazz. The New York Times has praised his, him as a ferocious moral vision. Currently the class of 1943 professor at Princeton University, uh, West burst onto the national scene in 1993 with his best-selling book, Race Matters. Everybody, have anybody read that one? A searing analysis of racism in American democracy. Race Matters has become a contemporary classic, and West has published 17 other books and has edited 13 texts. He's been busy. His new book, Brother West, is like its author, brilliant, unapologetic, full of passion, yet cool. You'll see his coolness and his fire. This poignant memoir traces West's transformation from a schoolyard Robin Hood into a progressive cultural icon. From his youthful investigation of the death shutter to why he embraced his calling of teaching over preaching, West illuminates what it means to live as an aspiring blues man in a world of ideas and a jazz man in the life of the mind. Woven together with the fibers of his lifelong commit commitment to prophetic Christian tradition that began in Sacramento Shiloh Baptist Church. Anybody from that church up in here? A little, a couple of you. Brother West is a tale of a man courageous enough to be fully human, living and loving out loud. 
His latest CD, Never Forget, A Journey of Revelations, is a collection of socially conscious music featuring collaborations with Prince and Outkast and Jill Scott and Talib Kweli. All right, Brother West. And on a personal note, Dr. West's writing has influenced my own research and my own teaching on emancipatory therapeutic approaches and community healing practices. I thank Dr. West for giving us courage and fearlessness as it relates to racial justice, social activism, and radical discourse. Dr. West's talk tonight is entitled, The Burden Carried, by African-American men. Let's give him a resounding San Francisco, Dr. Cornell West. <laughs> I love you. Love you, love you, love you. What a blessing to be here. <laughs> Professor Dean Denise Boston. Love you, Professor Dean Boston. Oh, what a blessing to be here. Oh, it's so dark, I can't see too many of you, but I can sure feel you, and I can connect with you, but I can't see you. Oh, Lord. Oh, what a blessing to be back, not just in San Francisco, but the California Institute of integral studies, once again being kind enough to bring me. I want to salute the captain of the ship, my dear brother, the President Joseph Subiando. Give it up for brother, brother Joseph. Give it up for brother Joseph on the case. Wrestling with the arts. I want to salute brother Kareem Bauer for being a force for good all the way from Arkansas to San Francisco. That's quite a journey, isn't it? That's a beautiful journey. That's a magnificent journey. And his beloved father, who himself is a distinguished professor who now teaches in Australia, is very proud of him, as is the case for so many of us proud of him. I want to salute Sister Emily, who works very closely with him, who does a marvelous job as she makes her move, both from here to Greece. You see, this, this California Institute of Integral Studies is a very cosmopolitan place. Very international place. Professor Boston was telling me she teaches in Korea as well as San Francisco. That's the kind of high-quality faculty and administration you have. Now, I know it's very, very dark, but I do want to introduce my dear brother, Pastor Michael McBride, who is such a freedom fighter. Just raise your hand, brother. Raise your hand. Can we turn the lights up just a little bit? Yeah, where's Brother McBride? There you stand up, brother. Stand up, McBride. Yeah. <laughs> Sister Rahel sitting right next to him. And there's a special brother who I want to introduce. His name is David Scott. He was a student when my mother was a principal at Franklin School in Sacramento, California. I'm talking about Irene B. West, who is the greatest woman of late modernity, my mama. There's, a, there's an elementary school named after her, Irene B. West, in Sacramento. Give it up for Brother David Scott. 
I know there's so many. Oh, I do want to acknowledge, too, my dear brother, Archbishop Franzo King. Where is he? I'm talking about the John Coltrane Church. Oh, I know he's out here somewhere. Yes, indeed. Love you, brother. Haven't seen you since we were in Ghana together. And did we have a time in Ghana? Oh, and we did godly things, not ungodly things. We had a good time in the spirit. I want to thank each and every one of you all for coming out tonight. You can see I am in no rush whatsoever. <laughs> I lost my voice yesterday at Allen Temple Baptist Church on the east side of Oakland. Oh, I love J. Alpha Smith, senior and junior. Take a bullet for him, not in my leg, but in my heart. That's how deep the love is. And at the same time, my voice bounced back today. And so I'm so very glad that we're going to have time for question and answer, call and respond. Call and response. You know, I, I refuse to lecture without the audience having a chance to, to push me against the wall. <laughs> so I can learn, so I can listen. And that's the tradition that produced me. You can't talk about the burdens of precious black brothers without talking about where we ought to begin, which is always acknowledging. And I want to begin on a personal note. I am who I am because somebody loved me. Somebody cared for me. Somebody attended to me. So all this talk about being self-made when you see successful folk or successful Negroes, just know it's a lie. It's a form of deception. And that the highest honor that I shall ever have in my short life is to be the second son of the late Clifton and the present Irene West to be the younger brother of Clifton West, graduate of UC Berkeley, set the mile record at UC Berkeley. He and the great Eddie Hart of Pittsburgh, California, <laughs> won the NCAA championship in 1972. That's the year that the Isley brothers were singing Brother, brother, brother. Oh, yes, the burden of being a black brother, making those connections, and being the older brother of Cynthia and Cheryl and the father of Zaytoon and Clifton, that I stand in a great family tradition. I understood what the genius from Vallejo Sylvester Stewart, Sly Stone, meant when he's saying, it's a family affair. It's a family affair rooted in deep love, all the challenges that go along with that love, and it's spilled over on the chocolate side of Sacramento in a place called Oak Park in Shiloh Baptist Church on Ninth Avenue with a legendary pastor, Willie P. Cook, and he was a pastor, he wasn't a CEO.
And we had choirs. We didn't have praise teams. <laughs> and we had mega love, but it wasn't a mega church. Drove a VW his whole career, wouldn't allow anyone to give a penny for his house. And the building fund is how he took care of the roof because he wanted to be a carpenter like his savior, a Palestinian Jew named Jesus. And his prison ministry was bigger than his building fund. See, that's how blessed I have been. That's what has shaped and molded me. So when people talk about the black church, I'm not talking about Creflo Dollar. <laughs> Let him pimp his own people to get his plane. I'm talking about Reverend P. Cook, Willie P. Cook who had profound love and believed that he was called as a servant of the people. So he understood the language of a Huey Newton when Huey Newton followed the police and said, I would die for the people. And when the police put the gun to his head and said, yes, I'm willing to die, shoot, because we're going to make sure arbitrary policing is brought to an end. And black folk look and said, this Negro must be crazy. No, he's just loving you, that's all. He just loving you, justice, servant of the people. Willie P. Cook had his way of doing it. Brother Huey Newton had his way. But never forget, Huey Newton was the son of Reverend Walter Newton of Bethel Baptist Church in Monroe, Louisiana, and he was the baddest Negro preacher in that city. Mr. Huey Newton was a PK. He was a preacher's kid. <laughs> and he had the love flowing through him even as he radically secularized his father's revolutionary love with his Marxist analysis. We've got to learn how to embrace the insights of a variety of traditions. And this is part of being wrestling with the burden of black men, the ways in which we have had to be improvisational, flexible, fluid, protein in how we approach the world just in order to survive, let alone to thrive. You see, that's the tradition that I'm talking about. I'm talking about Mr. Peters, who was my little league coach, who I will never forget as long as I live. Because when I was growing up in Sacramento, I wanted to be the next Willie Mays. And my second aspiration was to be James Brown. <laughs> you know. I failed on both accounts. <laughs> but Willie Mays, I'd come, I would go see him with dad, my brother in Candlestick. You know, oh, he was so kind to us with that beautiful smile that he brought from Birmingham, Alabama. He always reached out to us, gave us a hug, full of love. James Brown, I would see every time he was in any city within a 30-mile radius. <laughs> and after four hours of giving it his all, he would always end the concert by saying, 
I am an extension of you and you are an extension of me and I want to serve you. Did anyone come here and to hear a song that we didn't play? No, you missed soul power. Hit it, Bootsy. <laughs> That's a tradition, y'all. Tradition of deep love and service. It's what the Isley brothers had in mind when they characterized the black freedom struggle as a caravan of love. Or the love train that the gentle genius from the west side of Chicago, the inimitable Curtis Mayfield, meant when he said, people, get ready. There's a train coming. Don't need no ticket, but you better make sure you've got some courage and willingness to take a risk and pay a cost and still have a smile on your face and style in how you deal with space and time because you come from a people who've been terrorized for 400 years, traumatized for 400 years, stigmatized for 400 years, but they still dishing out this caravan of love. Still dishing it out. And that's what Reverend Peters, Mr. Peters was as a little league coach. One could go on and on and on. Of course, for, you, it, for me, it had everything to do with the music. And when I listened to the voice of David Ruffin from Why Not Mississippi, Gut Bucket Jim Crow, Why Not Mississippi. And I took seriously the dynamics in that voice and wrestle with the burdens of being a black man coming out of Mississippi, making his way to Motown and getting a contract with a Barry Gordy and connecting with the temptations. It was Jimmy who was supposed to get the spot, but David got it. His brother didn't miss out on it. He would sing another song called What Becomes of the Broken Heart as a solo. But listen to David Ruffin's voice. What do you hear in that voice? Unbelievable vulnerability, subtlety, nuance, honesty. You hear the truth because the condition of truth for every human being is always to allow suffering to speak. But David Ruffin's voice, very much like the voices of Ted Mills of Blue Magic, Russell Tompkins Jr. of the Stylistics, Don McPherson of the Main Ingredients. That's before Cuba Goodens took over after Donald died of the Main Ingredients, you see. Marvin Jr. of the Mighty Dales. Brother Emmanuel of Enchantment. Michael Cooper. Confunction. <laughs> Vallejo. All four voices of the natural four who were hired by Curtis Mayfield along with a genius from St. Louis named Donnie Hathaway. Or his roommate at Howard University named Leroy Hudson. And they both wrote the song, The Ghetto Together. Nearly teenagers. That's the kind of black brothers I come from. That's the tradition I come from. I'm unapologetic 
about that particular tradition. And that's just on the male side of town. I ain't got to my mama yet. <laughs> and it is a tradition that is probably best understood by wrestling with the four questions penned by the greatest public intellectual in the history of America, in the history of American democratic experiment, in the history of the American empire. His name is W.E.B. Du Bois. We'll never forget Du Bois. And in 1957, at the age of 89 years old, with his passport already taken away by the U.S. government, already in handcuffs five years earlier because he was viewed as an agent of a foreign government as he was working for peace, literally under house arrest in Brooklyn, the greatest borough in the world. <laughs> with one visitor, one of the greatest of all brothers of any color of the 20th century, his name was Paul Robeson. <laughs> Two. Paul Robeson, W.B. Du Bois. Paul was under house arrest in Philadelphia at the time during the Cold War, given his critique of the vicious legacy of white supremacy and the ways in which it's inextricably interwoven with predatory capitalism, obsessed with profits, people's needs always secondary, tertiary, interwoven with patriarchy and homophobia too. Yes, indeed. Du Bois turns to Paul Robeson and says, I want to write a love letter to the younger generation. And it would be like a love letter to the Ferguson generation. Yes, a love letter to the, those who love Oscar Grant and his beloved family. Those who love Michael Brown and his beloved family. Those who love Tanisha Henderson. Those who love Walter Scott. In South Carolina, terrorized, traumatized, stigmatized, still trying to muster the courage to straighten their backs up. W. Du Bois said, I have these four questions that I want to send down through the quarters of time. Page 275 on that, in that first novel, The Ordeal of Manzart, Du Bois says. The first question is, how shall integrity face oppression? Because all of the brothers that I've mentioned so far, in their own way, exemplify integrity. You don't sing like David Ruffin if you're not aspiring to integrity. I try to tell that to the younger generations. Too many of them sing out of tune. Too many of them are singing for the money rather than for the music and the people. Too many of them are singing to stimulate people's bodies rather than to stir their souls to be freedom fighters in their trek from mama's womb to tomb. David Ruffin, Luther Vandross, Donnie Hathaway, and yes, the sisters, Nina Simone and Aretha Franklin. Billy Holiday and Carmen McRae and Sarah Vaughn and Dakota Staten. I know I'm supposed to talk about the brothers today, but I can't help myself. 
Oh, we brothers, what are we without the sisters? What are we? No doubt. But that first question, how shall integrity face oppression? I recall my father, when he dropped me off to Harvard College in the fall of 1970, turned to me. He said, son, he said, oh, we're so proud of you. You got those straight A's at Kennedy High School in Sacramento. I know Brother Kenneth Jones might be here because I love that brother so much from Sacto too. Oh, yes, he knows what I'm talking about. We had just shut the place down to incorporate black studies in the high school, so we took a risk early in our, in our lives. But Dad turned to me, and he said, but remember, son, he said, all I ask of you is that you do your best in your grades, but you never forget to be a certain kind of person, a certain kind of human being who never sells your soul for a mess of pottage. Integrity. I'm not going to be impressed if all you are obsessed with is being successful and you forget what you ought to be faithful to. I'm not going to be impressed if all you do is have tremendous material prosperity and trophy spouses and all this publicity and status and you find your soul is blacked out because you're no longer able to tell the truth and bear witness and be true to those who shaped you and loved you and served you. I'm not going to be impressed with that. That's what dad was telling me. He was saying, don't just end up being a peacock walking around with people saying, look at me, look at me, and look at me. Peacocks strut because they can't fly. I want you to be an eagle. Be an eagle the way the Reverend C.L. Franklin preached. The eagle stirs his nest. Be an eagle like the Reverend Dr. Gardner C. Taylor, who just died at 96 years old, but his sermons were so Shakespearean that NYU students were required to go hear him preach to have a spirit of what Hamlet and King Lear and Macbeth were all about. He was that dark. He was that tragic when he talked about the cross. But lo and behold, that caravan of love kept flowing through anyway. That's Gardner Taylor. That's Manuel Scott. In Dallas, Texas. That's Jasper Williams of Salem Baptist Church in Atlanta, Georgia. We could go on and on. That's Brother Amos Brown, Third Baptist in San Francisco. J. Alfred Smith, senior and junior. Allen. Temple Baptist Church. We're talking about a tradition, waves in an ocean, and the burdens that are bore by black brothers who are riding that wave, as it were, but always in the face of catastrophe. That's why I am a blues man. That's why black people are a blues people. And it's the greatest tradition 
in the arts, in the modern world, because it provides the conception of what it is to be human in the face of catastrophe, of calamity, of monstrosity. That's what 244 years of white supremacist slavery was about. That's what 90 years of American terrorism was all about. For every two and a half days, some black child, a woman, a man was hanging from some tree that strange fruit that southern trees bear that the great Billy Holiday sang about with such power. That's what Jim Crow Jr. is about with the prison industrial complex in place now. With the decrepit school systems that too often are producing soul murder in precious young folk, convincing them that they ought not to flourish in the way that they are. And the massive levels of unemployment and underemployment and people act as if it's part of the natural order until it affects those on the vanilla side of town. <laughs> oh, the economy's all right now. It's just 13% for black folk and 25% for, well, really 45% for black teenagers. It's natural. It's all right now. All right for who? For who? catastrophe and the spiritual catastrophe my God you look at the souls the precious souls of young people in general in our predatory capitalist society stimulation titillation orgiastic foreplay obsessed for the moment instant gratification loss of memory loss of connection of the past Sankofa Push to the side. You see. But oh, when it comes to black youth, and especially black brothers, the open season on so many young, precious black brothers. In part because they haven't been loved, they haven't been cared enough, not enough attention. The warped priorities of our capitalist society mediated with white supremacy makes it natural and routine for them to live lives of wasted potential, unrealized possibility. And we know in America, rich kids get taught and poor kids get tested. We know that. So testing just becomes another mechanism of exclusion to push folk out. If your creative intelligence and imagination doesn't fit through these little truncated exams that they give these kids, somehow they get pushed out. And what do they do? Where are they to go? I grew up in a ghetto. It's called Glen Elder, Sacramento, California. But it was the ghetto. The Donnie Hathaway and Leroy Hudson sang about because we had love there. We had bonds of empathy. We had ties of sympathy. The whole neighborhood was keeping track of the young folk. Mom and dad didn't have to be home for Mrs. Burton to keep track of us. And mom kept track of Miss Burton and the others. It was a community. We were just broke as the Ten Commandments financially. <laughs> but we had a spirituality, a connection with each other. We had a sense of service to each other. It was the black brothers who built the Little League Diamond. The whole Little League Diamond kept track of all of us. The brothers who had little potential, 
still got a chance to play. It wasn't Darwinian yet. You know, nowadays in sports, you send your child out there and you know the child's mediocre, but he's just trying to get a sense of community and social connection. <laughs> when he sit on the bench for six games, he won't do something else. No, no, the shift from the ghetto to the hood is a, a shift from ties of empathy to survival of the slickest. Because it becomes all about money. Wu-Tang Clan is right. Cream. Cash rules everything around me, but it doesn't have to rule me. I can still attempt to aspire to integrity. And we can see the survival of the slickest because it reinforces not integrity, but rapacious individualism. So we got to shift from we consciousness to I consciousness. It's just about me and my project and my program. I don't have to be connected or concerned with anybody else. That's one of the reasons why even our younger generation, we know they're magnificent in so many ways, but they don't sing in groups anymore. When I grew up, we had the Delphonics and the Dramatics. Yes, we had the Whispers. We had the Jones Girls. We had the emotions and the Hutchison sisters. We had brothers and sisters who played instruments. Lakeside, Charles Wright, Watts Hunting Third Street Band, Sly Stone. They played the instruments, not computers. Wasn't sampling music. When James Brown called on Clyde to play the drummer song, he didn't hit a button. <laughs> Clyde hit it. No instrument will ever sound like cold sweat, ever, let alone the drummer song, let alone Maceo blowing his own. All the burdens that black men, we black brothers have bore, but look at the response. We've never been solely victims. We look the victimization in the face and say, watch this. Look what we're going to do with this. You give us all this social misery and we're going to give you some delicacy. Oh, yes, because we black brothers, especially in the last 40 years ago, we also specialize in what I call militant tenderness. Oh, we're losing it now. We're losing it now. Otis Redden, genius from Georgia, singing for stacks. He sings, try a little tenderness. Young folks sing today, say my name, say my name, say my name. <laughs> Brothers knew how to beg. That's a sign of tenderness. Stay in my corner. Ain't too proud to beg. So many songs shot through with the call for intimate mutuality and reciprocity. 
not domination and manipulation of a woman as an object of sexual desire. That's something different. Militant tenderness. What did Martin King say when Malcolm X was killed? In Harlem, 176th Street, Audubon room right on the edge of Harlem. He said, oh, he had the sweetest spirit. That's brother to brother. Now, Malcolm had already called Martin a chump. Because what we love about Malcolm was he was always sincere and spoke what was on his mind at the moment. <laughs> and he called Martin a chump. Why? He said, you don't use precious young black children in Birmingham against gangsters like those police. That's a serious conversation. We had it in the barbershop with the black brothers. Martin, we love you, but you're going too far. You can't put these kids out here. These are thugs you're dealing with. They'll crush our precious children like cockroaches. And Martin understood the love that motivated Malcolm's language because they both love black people so. And that's why Martin could still say, Malcolm had the sweetest spirit. Now, you say that to the white mainstream in 1965 about Malcolm X. They <laughs> said, so you lost your mind. No, no, because the burden felt by black men allows one to stay in tune and in touch with those who have integrity, even if you disagree with one another. Oh, that's crucial. That's crucial. That's why even Huey and Bobby Seale and the others, when they fundamentally disagree with Martin's nonviolent stand, one thing they all agreed on is that Martin would never sell his soul for a mess of pottage to the white establishment. That his motivations... Well, on the right track, even if you disagreed with his analysis, disagreed with his strategy and tactic. And that's precisely why Martin said what he said about Malcolm. And Malcolm did apologize because Malcolm was so sincere. He said, I said that then. <laughs> and so when Martin King called Malcolm on June 27, 1964, because Malcolm had already left the nation March 12th, they had shook hands March the 26th, and in June, Malcolm said, I'm going to the UN to put the US on trial for the violation of human rights of black people. Martin called and said, I want to be with you, Malcolm. Oh, yes, that's coming together. That's integrity overlapping in the ideological, spiritual way as a Jesus-loving, free black man, Martin, and a Quran-loving, Allah-loving, free black man, Malcolm. Black men come together. Why? Because of a deep love for those catching hell. Because of those friends Fanon called the wretched of the earth, this caravan of love somehow has got to keep moving in the face of catastrophe. Now, I know that's just the boys' first question. I got three more left. I told you I'm in no rush. But the issue of integrity is crucial. 
You have to be willing to make the quest for unarmed truth, to tell the truth about the suffering and keep track of the least of these, the weak, the vulnerable, the widow, the fatherless, the motherless, the poor, those in the hood, those locked into the prison industrial complex, those working poor people of all colors, but beginning on the chocolate side of town. And that's very, very important. Because in America, one of the ways in which you can become highly successful is falling in love with everybody but black people. We got too many black folk who love everybody but black folk. That's a problem. That's a problem. When you get in trouble, you think, think of the last 10 years, every 28 hours, some precious black or brown Girl or boy, female or male, but disproportionately male, has been shot down by a policeman. Every 28 hours, we've already lost 111 in the month of March. Walter Scott is just the peak of an iceberg. And you got a black president, you got black attorney general, you got a black cabinet secretary, Homeland Security. Their fundamental aim is to make sure every citizen is secure with all these three black faces at the highest level of our government. These black brothers still getting shot and not one policeman is under federal prosecution. Something is wrong. Something is wrong. We got to tell the truth about this. What's happening here? Where's the translation? Don't tell our young folk just to go out and vote and vote. They did vote and it still didn't translate. It's a key sweat moment. Something, something just ain't right. Shit. Tell young folk the truth out of love. Something wrong with the system. You got a police culture, too much contempt when it comes to young black and brown young people. And they think they can get away with it with impunity. Send some of them to jail and see how long they keep doing it. You're going to need more than just sending them to jail, though. People say, even in Ferguson now, my dear brother McBride, love you so, man. He was there for so long, coming back all the time. Oh, if we can just get some black folk on city council. I said, well, let me bring you to Philadelphia. You got a black mayor, you got a black police commissioner, you got a black fire chief, you got a predominantly black city council. They still killing black youth with their police. What's the problem? It's the culture. So even the black policemen get acculturated in such a way that they think they can treat these young folk in such a way that it violates their dignity and be accepted and have impunity. Something's got to change. Integrity, that's what we got to pass on to the younger generation, not just the brothers, but the sisters too. We're talking about the brothers tonight. The second question, Du Bois, 1957, 89 years old, strong as ever, but the U.S. government trying to crush him. He says, what does honesty do 
in the face of deception. Oh, there's another black brother comes out of Harlem, never went to college, but a college went through him. His name is James Baldwin. Oh, James Baldwin. The burden of a black man. Oh, you turn to that last sentence in his preface, the notes of a native son of 1955. He writes it on the streets of Paris because he's left America. He can't take the sense of insanity and absurdity of living in a white supremacist civilization. I'm going to Paris. And he pins this sentence in all of my life. I just want to be a good writer and an honest man. An honest man. Because he knows to aspire to integrity and to be an honest person is to be profoundly countercultural in America. <laughs> profoundly countercultural. Because there's so much mendacity, so many lies, so much criminality, so many crimes, but we don't even get a chance to define some of the crime for what they are. Look at Wall Street 2008. Hundreds of bankers involved in market manipulation, insider trading, fraudulent activity. How many Wall Street executives went to jail? Zero. Let Jamal get caught with a crack bag. Let Letitia get caught with marijuana going straight to jail. If they don't get shot. That's a crime. It's just hidden and concealed. Our school systems in the urban context, they're crimes against humanity. That's what they are. All that rich intelligence and imagination, unbelievable potential, but you get the same neoliberal response. What's the neoliberal response? It's always threefold. Financialize, privatize, militarize. That's what it is. Bring in the big money, either from the NGOs or the big banks and the big corporations. Privatize the public life, be it transportation, be it education, be it whatever. Just privatize because it's making money. Prisons the same way. Privatize, make the big money, keep the profits, put it on stock exchange, and make sure that we continually have the bodies flowing through, especially those bodies we put such little value on, the black bodies and the brown bodies. And it's not just race, it's not just color, but it's also class. Because there once was a time when we had Benjamin Mays of Morehouse, Mordecai Johnson of Howard University. These were middle-class Negroes, but their destiny was linked to poor Negroes. We had churches whose ministers may have been petty bourgeois in their lifestyle, but they were preaching to poor Negroes and they had to tell the truth about those poor Negroes' lives. We live in a time now where we've got a black middle class. Too many of them don't believe that their destiny is inextricably connected to poor, poor black people. The poor black folk. We see it in black leadership. That's why we live in the age of the sellout when it comes to black leadership. 
be it elected or not elected, just dangle enough money and enough status to give them a television show and all of a sudden they become well-adjusted to injustice with a smile. And everybody knows that if black middle-class young people were going to jail at the same level as black poor young people, if some of the Jack and Jill brothers and sisters were going to jail at the same level as those on the corner, we'd have different kind of black leadership because it would be the middle class kids who are affected rather than the black poor kids. Well, you see, I'm a revolutionary Christian. I believe that every life has the same status and the same significance. I don't care what color, what class, what sexual orientation, what culture, what civilization. The same is true just in the last six months. What happened this summer? 500 precious Palestinian babies killed in 50 days. 50 days. And not one politician, not one so-called black leader, raised a mumbling word because they scared, they so intimidated by the mainstream. They don't want to connect the preciousness of Palestinian babies with the preciousness of any baby, Israeli, Ethiopian, Eritrea, Argentine, Argentine, whatever. They just scared. Why are they scared? Because they want to be successful. They want to be embraced by the mainstream and they know there's certain issues you don't touch. Oh my God, can you imagine Curtis Mayfield trying to play his instrument with certain notes he can't touch? And you know, Curtis Mayfield's guitar was based on just the black notes of the piano. It's not because he was just in the blackness as an abstract symbol. <laughs> That's how he taught himself living with his grandmama, who was a great evangelical sister on the west side of Chicago. That's just a footnote. <laughs> you got to be open. You got to be free. One of the challenges of, the fundamental challenge one could say of being a black man in America is dealing with niggerization. And when you niggerize the people, you convince them not only that they're less beautiful and less moral and less intelligent, all the white supremacist lies and forms of deception Du Bois is talking about, but you make sure they stay so scared and afraid and intimidated that they walk around with their back humped over, laughing when it ain't funny, scratching when it don't itch, wearing the mask just in order to be successful in a white mainstream and then go home and have to deal with the repression of it. You see, I come from a tradition of black brothers and black sisters that believes in being de-niggerized. My church used to preach, Jesus de-niggerizes. And when you're de-niggerized, you look the white supremacist lie in the faith and say, this is a pathology. 
Ain't got to do nothing with me. It's a pathology on the other side of town. And there's no such thing as a Negro problem. Ain't no such thing as a Negro problem. It's catastrophe visited on black people. And the question is going to be, what will be your response to it? Intellectually, morally, spiritually, economically. Will it be channeled through a love and justice or will it be channeled through a hatred and revenge? Will it be spiritually mature or will it just be as gangster-like as the gangsters who are trying to impose white supremacy on you? Oh, that's the spiritual test. That's the spiritual test. That's why Louis Armstrong can play West End Blues when his mama dies, hits the highest C ever heard on the trumpet on the European instrument and it affects the souls of everybody all around the world because he has examined himself so deeply that in the face of catastrophe he still loved and because justice is what love looks like in public just like tenderness is what love feels like in private that's Louis Armstrong that's Duke Ellington that's John Coltrane's a love supreme that's Mary Lou Williams with her mass in the Catholic tradition. All Negroes not Baptist. All Negroes not Pentecostal. Tony Morrison, Catholic. Mary Lou Williams, Catholic. Now, it's not the main tradition among black folk, but it's a Richmond, just like all Negroes not Christian. Some are beautiful Muslims. Some are beautiful agnostics. Some are beautiful atheists. Some of them haven't thought deep enough about the issue. <laughs> That's true for every community. That's true for every community. You see. Third question, Du Bois, 1957. What does decency do in the face of insult? How does one attempt to be a decent human being when you got attacks and assaults and always dealing with insult? It's not just the police. That's a more physical form. There's a spiritual form of terrorism that black men and black women have to come to terms with every day of their lives. The subtle insult and the overt assault. On the job, off the job, on the bus, on the subway, walking into the theater, trying to make it home from church, trying to preserve whatever little Holy Ghost you got that morning. It's amazing that black people haven't gone crazy. Been buffeted by a community, but the community now is so feeble. We've been sustained by the highest level of musical art and other arts. Black music is the great art form of the 20th century. The whole century reinforces the blues idiom because the whole century had to come to terms of catastrophe, be it Holocaust with our precious Jewish brothers and sisters, be it over 50 million killed in World War II, or be it over 65 million killed by European imperialisms all across the globe. The whole 20th century was nothing but a blues century. That's what it was. And Robert Johnson had already said so on his guitar. 
this is going to be catastrophic. And the question is, how do you respond to catastrophe? Oh, I come from a tradition that looks catastrophe unflinchingly in the face and says, just like B.B. King, when he sings his song, Nobody Loves Me But My Mama, She Might Be Driving Too. <laughs> That's catastrophe, y'all. That's like Sophocles is Antigone. Every force in the world, in the cosmos, in the society is against you. And the one refuge you thought you had, she might be driving. <laughs> and how does B.B. sing that song? With so much style. With a smile on his face. And he's got a little help from Lucille, his guitar. But in that guitar is Ma Rainey and Bessie Smith. In that guitar is Muddy Waters. In that guitar is Buddy Guy. It's a long tradition of that guitar as part of his armory. And B.B. King grew up in Mississippi where he learned in vacation Bible school in the sixth chapter of Ephesians. Brother, you're going to have to put on the whole armor in this battle. You got to put on the whole armor in this war where the catastrophe coming at you seems overwhelming, but all you got to do is muster the courage to tell the truth in your voice and sing a song in such a way that your soul affects other souls so that you provide a soothing sweetness for others against the backdrop of the catastrophe. Oh, that's the blues. And that's what black men and the black sisters have been able to give the world, even as so many of our precious black brothers experience too much early death, too much spiritual death, psychic death, social death, too much poverty, and not enough self-love. The three pillars, too many deaths, too much poverty, not enough self-love. Last question, Du Bois. Oh, we love you, Du Bois. So how does virtue face brute force? And this is the issue that is one of the reasons why so much of white America, and we always have our precious white progressives and white prophetic brothers, the John Browns and the Ann Bradens and Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel's and Edward Zaid's and others. We always embrace our white progressive brothers and sisters, but we know they got a lot of cousins. <laughs> oh, we're not naive now. And oh, those cousins need a lot of work, spiritually, morally, politically, and so forth. But there's always been progressive white brothers and sisters. And of course, we got our brown brothers and sisters, Cesar Chavez's and others. Oh, our Asian brothers and sisters, crucial, crucial. Grace Boggs and others. But this issue of brute force is one of the reasons why America tends to live in a state of denial when it comes to the vicious legacy of white supremacy. They don't want to hear the truth about the levels of violent repression. They don't want to hear the truth of the 244 years, not just of slavery, but the labor in which the labor itself was a species of torture. 
How did these people survive 244 years? It was against the law for them to worship God without white supervision in the land of religious liberty. It's true. For over 125 years, they could not bury their dead. Do you know what it's like to dehumanize the people at the level of not allowing them to put their loved ones in the grave with dignity? We saw it in Nazi Germany with our Jewish brothers and sisters. They didn't have the right to bury their dead. The very word human comes from the Latin humando, which means burial. Because what is distinctive about us as a species is that we're concerned about our loved ones even when they die. That's why they want to go out with style and dignity. And why was that? Well, Gabriel Brozo, and they buried that precious baby and it sparked a slave insurrection. They said, we better not let these Negroes bury their dead. Next thing you know, they're going to have a wave of slave insurrection and they're going to learn something from Haiti. They're going to learn revolution. They're going to learn widespread rebellion. So what happens when you can't bury your dead? You're thoroughly disoriented in time, and all of a sudden the three dimensions of time, the past, the present, and the future, get so commingled and confused. And if it were not for those songs that black people sang under surveillance, at the midnight hour near the creek, holding hands in a ring shout. And they call them the spirituals. And they're the greatest expressions of the voices of a people that allowed that humanity to trump the catastrophe even when they had to go back to work that next Monday morning, they had experienced the freedom in telling a truth. They just didn't have the political might to translate it into fundamental transformation. Spirituals, hundreds of them. Nobody knows the trouble I've seen. Nobody knows but Jesus. Swing low, sweet chariot. You all know the songs, wade in the water. God gonna trouble the water. Don't be scared of trouble. Don't be intimidated by trouble. You meet God in the trouble. That's what they were saying. And it was through those voices. That's why, in fact, the anthem of a blues people is what? Lift every That's why you can't be a blues woman or a jazz man unless you find your voice. Contemporary America, we got a predominance of echoes and not enough voices. <laughs> to be successful is to be a copy rather than an original. I tell the young folk when I go into the studio, oh, I love you to death and I can relate to the hip hop. I ain't no doubt about it. Not fully, because I'm old school, but I'm trying. <laughs> I can keep track of my Erica Badu. I know she's real. <laughs> oh, yes. I keep track of Kim Burrell. I know she's for real. But when I come, I'm bringing with me some Ashford and Simpson. I'm looking for the real thing. I'm looking for the originals, not just the originals who say Marvin Gaye is for real, baby, I'm for real. I'm talking about the originals like the towering figures who found their voices going all the way back 
through the great through the plantation all the way up to the cities. So I see Sister Beyonce. I say, Beyonce, you are the greatest entertainer of your generation. Ain't no doubt you got a lot of energy and talent, but you know you ain't Aretha. You know that. And that's not a put down, that's a description. because she's part of a culture of superficial spectacle. She gotta look a certain way. She gotta seem a certain way. She gotta appear a certain way. And given the highly sexualized character of predatory capitalist culture, she gotta shake a thing in a certain way. And all Aretha need to do is grab the microphone and sing from her soul, touch, put a hole in the ceiling. Put a hole in your soul. Touch your heart. Make you want to go on. And she's echoing the soul stirs with Sam Cooke and Johnny Taylor and Lou Rawls. They stirred our souls. They didn't just stimulate our bodies. They made us ready to stand up and be free even if we knew we had to be strategic as we move because most of us don't want to die too soon. Everybody gonna die. But when it comes to brute force, FBI, on Martin, on Elijah Muhammad, on Minister Louis Farrakhan, on all the black leaders who mean something. You can almost measure a black leader in terms of their FBI file. If it's zero and the null set, they ain't a threat to nobody. They wasting somebody's time and money when it comes to black freedom. Because when you really love black people and poor people and want to tell the truth, you got to be ready to die. And you got to come from a tradition that says, death, where is that sting grave? Where is that victory? I've already decided that love will trumpet in the end. I'm willing to bear witness into the catastrophe because I come from a people who've been doing it for 400 years and we got to keep that tradition alive if it's going to go on. And that's serious business, y'all. Because in the eyes of so many, when Brother Martin was shot down like a dog in Memphis, April 4, 1968, and something died in all of us when he was shot, ain't no doubt about that. We said to ourselves, if America treats Brother Martin like that, given the level of love, empathy, compassion, vision, courage, he wasn't perfect. He was a human being, but he was still a special kind of human being given the choices he made in light of Alberta and Daddy King and Ebenezer Baptist and Morehouse College and Crozier and BU. If they shoot him down like that, what they going to do with me? And you can hear Martin whispering from the grave. Black folk been raising that question for 400 years. If we don't have a cloud of witness 
of those who opt for integrity, honesty, decency, and virtue, and a small slice of those willing to tell the truth in such a way that they're willing to die, the black freedom movement will slowly but surely weaken, become more feeble, and just become assimilated into so much of the rot called American culture. Oh, we can hear Martin saying that. We can hear him saying that, and that's one of the reasons why I'm so upset that my dear brother Barack Obama has Martin Luther King Jr.'s statue in the Oval Office. I say, oh, don't play with him. No, no, don't play with Martin. You're playing with a great tradition, brother. This ain't no political game. This is blood, sweat, and tears. You see, when y'all meet and decide who you're going to kill in Pakistan and Afghanistan and Somalia, that ain't Martin. Don't put his name on that. No, no, no. Those are war crimes. Those are war crimes. He died fighting against war crimes. When you all can't mention the word poverty and you're so obsessed with the middle class and oftentimes when you say middle class, you're really talking about the vanilla middle class because most black middle class folk are lumping bourgeoisie. They beneath the middle class that they missed two checks, they broke two. When you bring in your Wall Street people rather than Main Street and you bail out Wall Street rather than Main Street, Martin cries. He sheds tears from the grave. Don't manipulate him that way. You're messing with something sacred. Black people ain't struggling for something like that. Just to be successful in some American mainstream. We have been a people so fundamentally committed to integrity, honesty, and decency and virtue that even when we were crushed, we decided not after being terrorized for 400 years to form a black Al-Qaeda or a black ISIS, we still dished out love warriors like Martin King. That's what I'm talking about. Do you understand? Do you get it? Do you know who we really are? Do you know where you really come from? Do you know how great the people actually were when they were on those plantations for so long, dealing with the Jim Crow and the Jim Crow Junior? And if we lose that, then the whole nation goes down because we have been the leaven in the American Democratic loaf. If we had opted for terrorism rather than love, America would already be fascist. That's what we're talking about. Oh, the burden of the black man. The vision, the love, the joy, not just the pleasure. Nothing wrong with pleasure, but joy is something more enduring. And we are people of joy as well as instant pleasure. And we spread it to the world. Most of the world understands that. That's why they're so in love with black music. They're so in love with black rhetoric. They want to walk like Jamal walks in Oakland. The way he stylizes space and time with such rhythm and melody in his body. But in America, it's still a challenge. And that's why I'm proud to be here. You all been so kind to let me go on for so long, but we're going to have good dialogue. I salute you. I salute you. The burden of the black man, the love, the joy, the vision of the black man. God bless you.
You've been listening to the podcast for the California Institute of Integral Studies. If you liked what you heard, find us and subscribe on iTunes or listen on our website, ciis.edu slash public programs.